Luke chapter 18 and verse 15 down to verse 17. Hear now the word of the Lord. And they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Amen. Well, we come now to the third parable in Luke chapter 18, this is a section that has been, a, I think, a great blessing to many of us. It's one of my favorite chapters, really, in the Gospel of Luke. I'm looking forward to chapter 21 as well. But in this chapter, you'll remember we began with a parable of the importunate widow. And this is the woman, you'll recall, boys and girls, who kept bothering the unrighteous judge. And it was a picture, Jesus tells us, of what it's like for us as believers to pray and to seek the Lord again and again and again and again for the blessing of God. We have to be persistent. Now, as what Luke does is something very clever here. He goes on to a second parable, and it's really as though the hinge upon these two parables is that subject of prayer, because he has the prayer of the Importunate widow or what we might call persistent prayer. And then we have the prayer of the proud and the publican. And so you have that hinge uh, there with prayer being kind of the segue uh, between these two parables. And this, of course, is where the Pharisee comes in and he prays to himself and he goes home unjustified. And the publican, the tax collector, comes and asks for God to have mercy on him. And he, by grace, goes home justified in a right relationship with God. That brings us now to this third story that is told by Luke. And here it seems as though the segue in this, just as you had the segue from prayer to prayer in the first two, now you have another segue from the prayer of the Pharisee and the publican here to this story about the little children. You say, well, what is the connection between that? Well, I think it's again that Luke is driving home the theme of pride and, and humility. And Luke is connecting here through this story of what actually happened. This is not a parable, but something that actually happened, boys and girls, in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me give you the overall story, and then I want to make two significant points for us all today. Here we have a situation where Jesus is publicly ministering and people were bringing their babies to Jesus in verse 15 to be blessed. You notice here it says, and they, that is the parents and others, were bringing even their babies. Now it's interesting that Luke puts it that way, even their babies to him so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. So here you have people bringing their children. They want their children to be blessed. Like any natural desire of parents, we want the best for our children in every way. And there is a desire that the children of believing parents would have the favor of God. That is certainly something natural. But the story gets tense because 
the disciples begin to rebuke those bringing these young children. They begin to tell them, stay away, keep your distance. However they phrased it, we're not told by Luke, but we're clearly told here they were trying to hinder the line of parents coming to seek Jesus for the blessing on their children. Now, why? Well, Luke doesn't tell us. Maybe maybe the disciples thought that these children weren't worth Jesus' time. Jesus needed to be working with adults. Maybe it's not a good growth strategy, they felt. Spending all your time with children and infants. Maybe it would be better if they would uh, aim at the parents, aim at, at the adults. Maybe they thought Jesus had more important things to do. Maybe somewhere else to go. We don't know. But it's interesting that Jesus uh, rebukes them. Uh, It's also curious, and I don't know the answer to this, and I'd be interested in your own theory, why Mark tells us that Jesus became indignant with the disciples. Luke doesn't tell us that, really. He just tells us that Jesus spoke to his disciples and kind of admonished them, permit the children to come unto me. But Mark tells us that this story, Jesus actually got angry. It's one of the few times we see Jesus angry. There there are times we see Jesus angry. You'll remember with the Pharisees uh, when he drives out the money changers. You remember Jesus got irritated and angry with Peter when Peter tried to hinder Jesus from going to the cross. That was the central work of Jesus was to go to the cross. And he said, get behind me, Satan. So I think it shows us something of the value and the importance Jesus put on this ministry he was doing right at this moment. To bless the children, the covenant children that were being brought to him. And I think we need to take that with us in all its implications. That one of the things that annoys and even angers our Savior, with righteous anger, by the way, is when the children are not brought to Christ and are hindered from coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. Children are a part of the covenant community. Here are the two thoughts I want us to think about for the rest of our time in this sermon. Number one, number one, the kingdom of God belongs to little children themselves. The kingdom of God belongs to little children. Here's the second point. The kingdom of God belongs to those who become like little children. Okay, I am going to argue from these verses here that both of these points are in view. The kingdom of God belongs to little children. The children of believing parents, the children of the covenant community. Remember, that's to whom Jesus is ministering here. And the children belongs to those who become like little children in their faith. So let's talk, first of all, about the first point here. I think you have both in view here. Notice that you have Jesus saying, permit the children to come to me. He's talking about literal babies. Not just adults having baby-like faith here. He's saying, bring the actual children to me. Everybody see that in, in verse 16? But Jesus called for them. That is the parents and the children and the disciples permit the children to come to me. So Jesus wants actual covenant babies to be brought to him for a blessing. It's not just a metaphor here. Okay, 
I want to make that clear. Some people try to teach this. This is just a metaphor for what saving faith looks like. We're going to get to that. But I want you to see, first and foremost, he's not just saying here, permit those who have a childlike faith. He's saying, no, I want you to bring those infants. Let me lay my hands on those infants. Let me pray over them. Let me bless them. And because they are a part of the kingdom. They, they are a part of the church. They, they are a part of the Lord's work. And so we, we see there uh, this throughout the Old and the New Testament, really. For example, let me just give you uh, a few examples here. I'm, I'm going to give you seven. Seven examples of this. Let's take, for example, the Exodus. Well, what do you have going on in the Exodus? Well, you have Pharaoh being told what? Let my people go. Let my people go. Wasn't that the, the command that that Moses gave to Pharaoh? Let my people go. Well, who left eventually? Well, everyone left. The senior citizens left. The middle aged left. The young adults left. The children left. The infants left. Everybody left. The children were not left in Egypt until they decided on their own as a teenager whether they wanted to leave Egypt or not. (laughs) They weren't left to make up their own mind. Well, honey, you stay here for a few years and when you come to some kind of age of accountability or whatever, you, you, you make that decision whether you want to leave Egypt or not. No, they, they, they brought them all out. The children were, were part of God's people. When God said, let my people go, he had the infants in view. Now, secondly, we see this in uh, Ezekiel chapter uh, 16. You might want to turn in your Bible here to the uh, book of Ezekiel. You might want to lay your own eyes on this one. Ezekiel chapter 16. God refers to the Israelites' children now, this is a terrible chapter in many ways uh, because the prophet Ezekiel is dealing with a terrible sin of idolatry where, remember, Israel is the visible church of its day. And yet, many of those in the visible church, parents, adults, were sacrificing their own flesh and blood to a pagan god. It was a part of the The worship of the God Molech. And in Ezekiel chapter 16, if you go down to verse 20, I want you to see one of the things that God says about this practice. He said, moreover, you took your sons and daughters. These are covenant children whom you had born to me. And sacrificed them to idols to be devoured were your harlotry so small a matter, verse 21, you slaughtered, and then here it is again. My children, says the Lord. These are his children. When, when we have children, that they're not fundamentally our own. God has given them to us as stewards, but fundamentally these children have been born into the covenant community. They belong to God. He says, you have slaughtered my children and offered them up to idols by causing them to pass through the fire. And then verse, uh, well, let me say this. So what is the Lord saying here? Well, God is saying that these children of natural descent of believing parents, or in this case, parents who should have been believing, but were in apostasy, 
that these children were born to him. They were they did not belong to pagan gods. They did not belong to the world. Jehovah, the Lord, claims them as his own. They belong to him. We see this again. The third illustration, King David. David, you'll remember, sinned with Bathsheba. A child is conceived. And from that, uh, the child is born. But God has punished David and made the child ill. And David begins to fast and pray and plead that God might show mercy. And he fasts for many days. He's prostrated on the floor. And, of course, the Lord, in his wisdom, takes the child home to be with him. And the child dies. And what we learn, though, afterward, when David begins to eat and he he worships God and his advisors are saying, we don't understand, you know, while the child was living, you're fasting. But now the child is dead. Why aren't you continuing in your mourning? And he said, well, when the child was alive, there was still hope for the child. And then he says these remarkable words. He said that now that the child is dead, the child will not return to me, but I will go to the child. And so David had a biblical expectation under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that his baby, his infant, was among God's people and was in heaven with God and that he, through his faith in the coming Messiah, would be with that child one day. But the child was a part of God's people as much as he was. And it was not because the child happened to die young enough, but it was because of the blood of Jesus Christ saved that child, that infant. Yes, friends. An infant must be saved by grace through the blood of Christ. And it is as we mature and grow that we put our faith in that which God has done through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We see here in our own text that the babies belong to the kingdom of God, we are told, by Jesus they're not just this is not a mere example for us as adults. It is that. But but these belong by their covenant birthright, covenantal birthright to the kingdom of God. Now, that which is a flesh is flesh. It's not by by the will of man or by natural descent, of course, to be brought into the kingdom must be by the spirit of God. But friends, we see even John the Baptist, while he was still in his mother's womb, was born again before he was born. The Spirit of God at work. God can still do that. And God often does. It would not surprise me in the least that some of you were regenerated while in your mother's womb by the Holy Spirit. Some of you came to faith maybe when you were two, three, four, six, ten, twelve, fourteen. I don't know. The Spirit blows where he will. We don't we don't command the spirit. The spirit is sovereign in his grace. But we see the effects of it. And so it does not surprise me in the least when some of you young people say, I've never known a day where I didn't know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. The Holy Spirit was working in my life from the very beginning of my life. And and I've known Christ from my earliest days, my earliest training On my mother's knee, listening to my father pray, hearing the word in church. Um, Friends, uh, young people, you need to know there there are people well-meaning but wrong who are going to try and tell you that because you don't have a specific day in your life that you can remember 
where you first came to Christ that you haven't been born again yet. Forget about it. Maybe. If you're outside of Christ, you need to come to Christ. But Spurgeon, I'm quoting a Baptist here now, Spurgeon of all people said, I don't have to know what time the sun got up to know that I'm in the daylight. Is, I don't have to know the day, the hour, when the work of regeneration took place in my life to know that I know in whom I have believed. We see also the Apostle Paul, fifthly, <clears throat> that children of even one believing parent is to be considered holy and not unclean. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 14, <clears throat> Paul is dealing with the subject of marriage, particularly remember marriage between a believer and an unbeliever. This this was something that happened. You have to remember, this is the first generation of the church. So you have two people who pay, were pagans, idolaters. Paul comes into town in Corinth, preaches the gospel, and one of them has put their faith in the Lord Jesus. But the other is still going to the temple to worship the idols. And there's. Pastoral questions arising in the congregation. What do we do about these marriages? And Paul is making it clear. If the unbelieving spouse is willing to continue to abide with you, then by all means abide with them. Because you have a sanctifying influence on their life and it may lead to their own salvation. It may lead to them coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the interesting thing is, as he's discussing this, he then says that your children are holy. Out of that union, even if it's a mixed union, an unequal yoking due to the grace of God. He says that even the child of one, uh, one believing parent is to be considered holy. And what does that mean? What well, means set apart under God? They're not unclean. So the, the children of even one believing parent is not to be considered a pagan or a Gentile, even if. Even if their father is still a pagan, they are set apart. God says, that's my covenant child because of the believing parent. And sixthly, we see, for example, in Ephesians 1.1 1, 1 and Ephesians 6.1, where the Apostle Paul addresses in his letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians as well, he addresses the church as saints. And in those very same letters, he exhorts specifically as a part, as a subset of those saints, the children in the church. He says specifically, children, obey your parents. So that in the mind of Paul, as he's addressing his letter to the church, to the saints, he is also commanding some of those saints who are young to obey their parents. That is, he views them as a part of God's people, the children in the church are members of the church and, and they are to be exhorted by the apostle to certain covenantal obedience, evangelical obedience to be certain must be an obedience that comes by way of faith in Jesus Christ. But children, you're a part of the church and there are obligations on you as a part of that covenant relationship you have with God. One more. We also see that. As I mentioned earlier, some of our covenant children are given the Holy Spirit even before they're born. Luke chapter 1, verse 15. John the Baptist, before his birth, is filled with the Spirit. 
Only God's people are born again. And those who are born again are members of Christ's body. Now, in view of these passages and others, let me say a few things about this in terms of of our own practice here at Covenant by way of application. Number one is this, that children, I think, indeed should be in the regular church activities as much as their creatureliness will permit. Okay, now we have to realize that it is not a sin to be a wiggly two-year-old, okay? It is a part of their immaturity. It's a part of their creatureliness. But where possible, we ought to try and include the children in the worship. Now, our own congregation, as almost all of you know, we do provide a nursery, but we don't require it. It's not mandatory. But I also think, though, that there is a fault to be laid at the feet of many pastors with regard to this passage, because I think pastors too often are not fulfilling their public role as a minister to the church by not speaking to you children. And that is why, if you're visiting, you wonder, why does he keep addressing the children? Well, because that's, I think, one of the things that ministers should do from the pulpit. Now, if your church has a children's sermon, okay, fine. I think it would be better, though, if you'd include the children in the adult sermon and make them a part of the regular preaching of, of the sermon that everybody hears. Um, some, sometimes it's a, it's a bit humorous when we get people who are new uh, to our congregation or they're listening to us for the first time uh, and we get feedback. Um, and, and many years ago, we've gotten feedback over the years uh, of this practice. And I inherited it really from Larry Miniger, which is where I learned it. He was always addressing the children at Lake Sherwood in Orlando, which is where I went to church when I was in seminary. But, uh, you know, there was a time when uh, those of you who are older will remember David Letterman was very popular and, and he had a late night program. And he, one of his shticks was always to say, now, kids, you know, listen. And, and he was addressing everybody as kids. And there was actually was a visiting woman who thought I was trying to be like David Letterman by saying, now, kids, you know, <laughs> and and uh the somebody who is a member of the church has to say no 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 he's talking to the children in the church um but then i i heard another one recently uh, somebody uh we got feedback somebody was listening on the internet uh to to us and uh they they were listening and they heard me addressing the children and they thought i was doing kind of an apostle john thing first john now i say to you little children you know and they were like wow that's kind of weird you know he's talking like the apostle john to them i'm not doing apostle john or david letterman uh, just so everybody knows, uh, I, I'm not trying to do either one of them. But I do think we need to, to speak to you young people. Uh, you are a part of the church. Jesus said, permit the children to come to me. Now, of course, Spurgeon had that great, uh, famous sermon, maybe infamous from our perspective, you know, because he was a Baptist. But he said, you know, bring the children to Jesus, not to the font, you know, was his line. Um, but... Uh, we, we should, we can agree with Spurgeon, at least on the first part, uh, that we bring our children to Jesus. Whether you're Baptist or whether you're Presbyterian, we are all to be bringing our children to Jesus. I would just simply argue that baptism is the first step in bringing your child to Jesus. Um, because you are setting them apart for Christ. 
that they are not a pagan now. They are a disciple of Christ. We're discipling them, not just evangelizing them. We're discipling them for Jesus. You know, we're, we're evangelizing the world. But, but we're, we're seeking to disciple, make disciples, teaching them everything that God has commanded uh, in his word. Now, yes, that, uh, we're not suggesting here that, you know, in anything like baptismal regeneration, whereby the simple application of the ordinance of baptism, they are thereby born again. Our own standards say, no, our own standards say that the, the moment of regeneration is not explicitly tied to the to the sacrament itself, the moment of the sacrament. It may happen before the sacrament. It may happen many years after but what we are doing is we are recognizing that these children belong to the Lord. They're not ours. You know, the strangest thing to me as somebody who has been raised in the South and, and has appreciated so much of Southern culture, especially the love for college football. One of the strangest things to me is that I live in a Baptist culture where they won't unite their infants with Jesus in baptism, but they'll clothe that infant in the university that they love, in their clothing. There are even commercials. Have you seen the commercials on ESPN? Where it shows all the SEC infants in their old Miss outfit or in her little, you know, Alabama cheerleading thing. And I think, do you people, do you fellow friends and Baptists not see? You will clothe your child in your alma mater, but not in Jesus himself. That's just so perplexing to me. I want my child to wear Jesus's garments. I want my child to be united to Christ visibly, not only spiritually, invisibly, visibly united to Jesus, dedicated to Christ. Listen, I'm all for infant dedication. But why don't you do it the way the Bible said with water? That is how we show our dedication to Jesus. That's how we show we're separated from the world. All the infant dedication is, is a waterless baptism. And show me that in Scripture. They're always saying, show us infant you know, baptism in Scripture. And that's another sermon. I'll be glad to do it another day. But show me, show me infant dedication. Oh, boy, they brought Jesus to the temple. That was in fulfillment to the Old Testament law, friends. You don't want to go there. With that, that's not the argument you want to use. We're not under the law. Of all people to bring that argument, that's a weird one. Because, you know, well, let's move on. So we address the children. We address you children. You know, I don't know what our demographics are right at this moment. Many years ago, I went through the directory and and put down the ages of everybody, you know, where, where we were. And I made little graphs and, and, you know, realized that we, we had like twin towers in the first two categories, the zero to nine and the 10 to 19, like these twin towers and then kind of went down and then and, and, and from there. But, you know, you realize that 50% of the congregation was under 18 years old. That's a lot of church. And that's a lot of people to be neglected from the pulpit. By pastors. So, Zach, I hope you're taking this in as a second year seminary student, future preacher, we trust. 
you know, to preach to the kids, to you children. Kids, that means you need to listen, though, too, doesn't it? It's not just the responsibility of the preacher to bring the message to you. You've got a responsibility. Now, yes, God will judge you according to your ability as a child. He's not expecting you to listen as an adult, but he is expecting you to listen. He is expecting you to take something away from the message that is being delivered. These are the words of life to being given to you. And you do have an obligation to to listen and to apply the word to your own lives and to be accountable to it. So that when mom and dad ask you, what did you hear today in the sermon? You should be able to say something at the dinner table to them about that. Remember, he who has more will be given to you. But if you do not have even what you have is going to be taken away from you by God, if you don't listen. And so you need to you need to take the preaching of the word seriously as we all do. Now, there's one other main point, but it's going to be shorter. And that is those who, for their own reasons, don't want to draw this connection that the kingdom of God belongs to children themselves as infants. They always want to say, no, no, what's being said here is the kingdom belongs to those who are like little children. And I think that's right, too. I mean, at least the second half is right. They're not all wrong. That, that here, I think Jesus has a twofold meaning. He is saying here, on the one hand, yes, the kingdom belongs to little, literal children. Bring the infants literally to me. But he also is making, as good preachers always do, there's one meaning, many applications. And Jesus is making another application to his adult hearers. Bring your children to me. But yes, they are also an illustration for you. And that is you adults need to have a childlike trust. That as these little children have a trust. Uh, we saw it yesterday. Those of you who watched the wedding, one of the grandchildren comes down, flower girl, and she pops in the lap. Uh, Paul Garcia, that's not her grandpa, but hey, I trust you and hold me, you know, <laughs> in this service. And uh, that's a childlike trust there. Uh, and so Jesus is saying here that the most and this is something that we need to learn. And those of you who are in the what we call the cage stage of Calvinism, those of you who uh, maybe you're new to Calvinism and because of the newness of it. You're maybe using it as a blunt instrument with others who are not yet Calvinists. <laughs> um, you need to hear this especially. Because what Jesus is saying, the most important aspect of your faith is your trust in the Lord. Yes, you must have a knowledge of the Lord. Yes, you must assent to the truth of God's word. That's where the cage stage folks excel. The third thing is but you must have a childlike trust in the person of Jesus himself. We're not saved because we have an orthodox view of justification. You've got to get that straight. You need to have an orthodox view of justification, I think, to be saved. But that orthodox view of justification is Christ alone. Does that make sense? You've got to have Christ what, what the doctrine of justification by faith says is I will trust in nothing else, even in my orthodoxy I won't trust. I have to have Christ and Christ alone, the person of Christ. 
That it is he who saves me, not myself, not even my, my uh, belief in the in these other doctrines. Now, they, those things are important for us to understand the gospel. Now, Jesus is not saying here in verse 17 that we need to become immature in our faith. He says, truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. <clears throat> there are some people who think, you know, as long as I just know Jesus, that's OK. Let me suggest to you, yes, you, that part you need to get down. You must know Christ. You must receive him like a little child. You must believe on him and trust him and love him and put your hope in him and commit your life to him in a simple, loving trust and faith in the person of the God man of Jesus himself. Jesus, the son of God incarnate. You must have that. But it does not mean that we rest in an infantile faith. We are to go on to maturity, we're told. We see elsewhere in the New Testament that we are to press on in the teaching of God's word. We, you know, one congregation was rebuked because he said you should be teachers by now. You've been Christians long enough. You ought to be teaching others now, but you're still needing to go over the basic elements of the Christian faith. So this is not saying that we are to be immature and infantile in our faith, but that our faith is to have this childlike commitment that rests in the lap of Christ, that looks to him alone and trusts not in themselves. Let me ask you here this morning whether you are trusting in Christ himself, whether you're visiting and maybe you don't have a religious commitment yet. Maybe you have been a very stringent Calvinist. And you, you are absolutely dedicated to the doctrines of grace. But it may be that both of you still need Jesus. It may be that both of you are actually still in a strange way in a similar place. Maybe, maybe in your zeal for God's word, you've lost sight of Christ in the midst of the doctrines of Christ. That's possible. We need to always be careful. We need to always be examining ourselves. And we need to be asking, am I trusting in Jesus? Or am I trusting in my own orthodoxy? Am I trusting in the things I've learned? Am I trusting in some kind of self-righteousness that I know more than other people do? The Lord forbid that that be the case, that we lose that childlike faith. In the midst of all of our knowledge and learning. These two things are to complement one another. Not be at enmity. I don't think seminary has to be cemetery. Sometimes people will call it that. For me, it was a wonderful blessing. Seminary was tremendous in many ways. But we do need to be careful that we knew, lose not Jesus in the midst of our pursuits. Maybe you're here and you you don't have a particular commitment religiously. I would exhort you this morning as we close, as we come to this table, that 
you not participate yourself in the eating of the bread and drinking of the cup, but that you watch. Because what we're about to do here is we're about to tell you the most fundamental work of Jesus Christ for us. And that was his death on the cross. That the bread represents his body, the cup, the blood of Jesus Christ, and that Jesus gave himself for us. And what we're doing here when we eat this bread and what we do when we drink the cup together in faith, what we're simply saying is my trust is in you, Jesus, what you've done here. What is symbolized in this meal, what you did for me on the cross, that's my trust. I'm coming to you as a child, putting my trust in in the work that you have done for me, out of your love for me. Lord, receive me, bless me through this meal. That's what we're doing here. That's what we urge on any here who have never made that commitment to Christ himself. See that this is what God has done. He's loved us. He's given his son for us. And that we come to him as children to a father. Let's pray together.